Bow with me in prayer, if you will. Almighty God, maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who is sovereign over all things, we bow before you today and we thank you for your goodness. Lord, your goodness in our lives, when we see it and when we don't, you're always the same. You're unchanging. And Lord, you are faithful to keep your promises. I pray today as we reflect on your goodness and are reminded of where our hope is, that our faith would be strengthened as we've gathered here together for these few minutes. And Lord, that we would be drawn closer to you because of it. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word that gives us direction and guidance and uh, teach us now as we learn from it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to join me in the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. We're continuing today in our series, Return, Lessons from the Minor Prophets, with a message entitled, God is Our Refuge. God is Our Refuge. I want to ask you a question. Are you a fan of sequels? A sequel, by definition, is a novel, movie, or TV show that comes directly from another, and it's sequential, generally speaking, and it derives from the storyline of events that have already taken place. So it's sort of the second installment of something that we are familiar with. Sequels are not typically as critically acclaimed, but uh, the fans sometimes especially enjoy them because they get to see more of their favorite characters or plot line or, or whatever. But the top five highest grossing movie sequels of all time are The Avengers Endgame, Star Wars The Force Awakens, Avengers Infinity War, or Infinity Way I should say, um, I'm sure I just offended some purists, um, Spider-Man, No Way Home, and Jurassic World, the top five highest grossing sequels of all time. I say that because Nahum, in a sense, is a sequel, and it's a sequel to the book of Jonah, although it dramatically contrasts with the outcome of Jonah. At the end of Jonah, uh, the Ninevites have repented, they've turned to God, they've listened to the message. Jonah himself is left a little bit open-ended because of his reluctance to do what the Lord had asked him to do to begin with. But the people repented. And the prophets, Jonah and Nahum, are linked together by virtue of the fact that they both prophesied against the same people. Jonah's mission to Nineveh was probably in the first half of the 8th century B.C. Typically, Jonah's dated to the period of Jeroboam and if you want a timeline or some type of context of how far separated the sequel is, we're now about 100 to 150 years after Jonah. That's where Nahum comes in in the timeline. God had called the Hebrew prophet Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. Jonah was actually convinced they didn't deserve a chance to repent or to be saved. How's that for spiritual pride? God told him to go to the city of Nineveh and prophesy against it because of their great wickedness against him. And then Jonah did what? He did the opposite of what God told him to do. And he ran as far as he thought he could run. He got on the ship headed for Tarshish, which represented the furthest west 
that anybody could imagine at that time. Because of his disobedience, God sends a storm, and the ship that he's on is in trouble. Jonah was eventually thrown overboard. He's swallowed by the great fish. He cries out to God in desperation, and God delivers him from the belly of the fish. Jonah, in turn, reluctantly fulfills the mission that God gave him by going into the city and preaching a message of repentance. Nineveh genuinely repented, but the problem was it turned out to be somewhat temporary in nature. The generation that Jonah preached to was completely spared from the wrath of God, just like God had promised. Nahum foretells the doom of Nineveh to encourage Israel from giving in to Assyria. Nahum has a condemning word against the Assyrians. They experienced mercy and grace in the time of Jonah, but once again defaulted to violence and greed. And God makes this declaration against them that is absolutely devastating. So what I want to do is what I've done in the other messages in the Minor Prophets and what our other preachers have done during this series. And that is consider the entirety of this book thematically, the entire story, the entire narrative, look at some specific passages within the narrative, and then draw some principles for application as we go along for our lives in the age that we live in. So I begin reading in Nahum 1 in verse 1, and this is what the Bible says. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The pronouncement refers to a burden. It's a heavy message of weighty importance. The reason it's such a heavy message is because it would produce sorrow and grief among the people because of the reality of what was to come. And the pronouncement was specifically against Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Remember, Nineveh was an ancient and rather famous city. It was founded by Nimrod, as is noted in Genesis chapter 10 in the Table of the Nations. And the major cities of the biblical world has this to say in part about Nineveh. From Nineveh's walls, temples, palaces, inscriptions, and reliefs, mute yet elaborate witness is given to a city that flourished up to its destruction in 612 B.C. Accordingly, the magnificent buildings, artistic designs, and water supply projects of Nineveh have resulted in it being likened to ancient Versailles. So this was a prominent city located on the east bank of the Tigris River. Uh, the river would form a natural boundary and also a point of protection to both the west and the south of the city. There was a wall that extended that ran approximately eight miles, forming the northern and the eastern boundaries. So if you put the city within that wall, it was about three miles wide and eight miles long within the city walls. But then they had what we would commonly refer to today as suburbs or surrounding villages or surrounding smaller uh, settlements of people. Those areas extended as far as 14 miles to the north and 20 miles to the south. So we're talking about an expansive city footprint and a lot that was going on there. Nineveh had heard the message of repentance, as we've already noted, over a hundred years before, but now they've fallen back into sin and they're ripe for judgment. You say, well, how could it be that a people who had wholesale repented just a hundred years before could be so far down as they were? 
Friends, a lot can change in a nation in a hundred years. If you were to look back over the history of our own nation and look at the things that have happened over the past 100 years, there have been some very positive things that have taken place, and there have been a lot of things that are not so positive that have taken place, but a lot has changed. The name Nahum means comfort or consolation. He's referred to as an Elkishite here, which means either this was a place that he was born, we're not exactly sure where it was, or a place from which he was ministering. And Nahum, along with the other prophets, is often avoided. And the reason that it's often avoided is because of the message on judgment. And when we read this, it's just unsettling. It's just hard to read and to hear what God is saying about these circumstances. And and sometimes we kind of just move quickly through them. But that's unfortunate because there are some great lessons for us to learn. These lessons teach us about who God is. They teach us about who we are and how we are to rightly relate to God. And they teach us about the things to come. So therefore, they are incredibly important for us, both practically and spiritually. Now, I believe the theme verse, for believers at least, is found in chapter 1 and verse 7. And here's what it says. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. God is good in his being. It is his nature to be good. God is eternally and unchangeably good. And God is good in all of his plans and his purposes for our lives. So when we begin with that as our foundation, that's going to encourage us to go in the right direction. Because we believe that we have a Heavenly Father who can be trusted, who remains the same, eternally so. He is consistently good in all that He does in His plans and His purposes because He cannot act in a way that is inconsistent with His character. And therefore, He cares for us when we take refuge in Him. So here's the big idea that I want to communicate and move forward on in these few minutes that we have together. God is our refuge, and he receives and cares for us when we turn to him. God is our refuge, and he receives and cares for us when we turn to him. So first, I want to show you that God will not acquit evil, and judgment is inevitable toward the unrepentant. Now, Nineveh likely felt safe. They probably felt relatively secure because of their worldly power, because of their culture, because of their size, their place in the world, they probably felt pretty safe from God's judgment. But chapter 1 and verse 2 gives us more insight into what God was thinking and what was coming for these people. It says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. When it says that the Lord is righteous and he is jealous, the jealousy of God is referred to in the purest sense. Our jealousy is impure at best. So we often get jealous of another person if we think that they've gotten something that they didn't deserve or maybe they were going in a direction we didn't want them to go in. Any number of reasons why jealousy can come. 
But jealousy is very dangerous because jealousy is closely related to coveting as well. And it can get us in a lot of trouble. But when it speaks of the jealousy of God, it's speaking of the fact that God will tolerate no rivals. So think Ten Commandments. Think you shall have no other gods before me. Because this is the idea. He will tolerate no rivals. He is also an avenging God. And the idea of the vengeance of God appears three times uh, in this verse. And God says, otherwise in his word, it is mine to avenge. I will take vengeance on my adversaries. So we can think about it in the way that God avenges his people in the sense that he champions their cause against their enemies. And he does so because he is protective of his people. He avenges against his adversaries. The enemies of the people of God are enemies of God himself. And then verse 3 says, the Lord is slow to anger but he is great in power. Because the Lord is slow to anger, he withholds judgment for a time. He is long-suffering and patient because his desire is that people repent. After all, he sent Jonah to Nineveh. This was a case in point. They were at the bottom of the barrel, spiritually speaking, and yet God was gracious to them, and he sent the prophet Jonah to deliver a message of repentance. And now he's doing the same again with Nahum. And because the Lord is great in power, he has the capacity to deal with people in a way that is consistent with his character. And even though Nineveh repented under Jonah's preaching, they had digressed back into sin and they would not escape the wrath of the Lord. Now, the power of God is also referred to and is evidenced in nature. His judgment is said here to be as devastating as a whirlwind and a storm. And he is so great that the clouds are like dust under his feet. Verse 3 says, his path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. The reference in verse 4 to the Lord rebuking the sea and drying it up and making the rivers run dry, I think are reminders, allusions to the fact that he had delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. Verse 4 references Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon. And he's making the point that no matter what the scope or the expanse is, God rules over it. He's sovereign over it. He's going to assert his righteousness in every situation. There are two rhetorical questions that are asked in verse 6. And rhetorical meaning that the answers are obvious. Who can withstand his indignation? Nobody. Who can withstand the power of God? Who can overcome the eternal God who spoke creation into being? The God who is holy in every way. And the second question is, who can endure his burning anger? And the answer once again is, nobody can withstand that. Now some tried. I think about Sennacherib's field commander when he challenged Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18. He said, who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? That is as good as thumbing your nose at God. And God cannot tolerate it because it would be inconsistent with who he is. If it is true that God will not acquit evil and judgment is inevitable toward the unrepentant, 
what should our response be to that? Well, if we don't have a relationship with God, the only right response is repentance and faith. And that may be where some of you are today. If you were honest, you would have to say that you have never repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Trusting in Jesus and following him. That's step number one. And that's the beginning point of life with God. But for those of us who already have life with God, we already know him, we live for him, we serve him as best we know how, we have the responsibility to sound the warning. Now, many of you have probably followed the tragedy of the wildfires in Maui. We need to pray for all of the individuals and the families affected. I'm told that the death toll has gone well above 100 now. There's still 1,000 people that are unaccounted for, although many of those, of course, will be located before it's over with. The material impact has not been fully calculated. But something interesting happened leading up to the fires when they really overtook the area that got hit the worst. The head of the Maui Emergency Management Agency resigned this past Thursday. And they have a warning system in place that was created after a 1946 tsunami. Um, And that 1946 tsunami, by the way, was probably as a result of climate change. Um, But at any rate, um, it can also be used to alert for fires. And Hawaii has what is touted as the largest system of outdoor alert sirens in the entire world. So back to this man who is the head of the Maui Emergency Management Agency. His name is Herman Andaya. He made a fateful decision when the fires were raging, the worst, not to use the warning system at all. In fact, it remained silent. He doubled down and defended his position because his thought process was the sirens don't extend into the mountains. And if the people went in the wrong direction, the mountains was where the heart of the fire actually was. And more lives would have been lost had they potentially sounded the sirens. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, or he's just trying to uh, cover his tracks. But I will tell you, whatever his logic was, a warning system is of no use if you don't sound it. And we have a warning to sound. We have good news to tell. And we need to let people know what the Word of God says and how they can be right with Him. But then that leads me to the second point. God will restore His people and have mercy on them when they trust in Him. Now, when we get to chapter 2, I would describe this sort of as a, a chaotic situation. And the reason it's a chaotic situation is the Ninevites are fighting to survive an attack and they're failing. Verses 1 through 13 contain a series of cameos that tell of Nineveh in its last days. And the message is one who scatters is coming up against you, referring to their ultimate demise. Assyria had scattered so many other nations and now the message is coming, they themselves would be scattered. So the cameos come fast and furiously. Man the fortifications. That means to guard the fortress, guard the ramparts, a word that we don't use very often. A rampart was basically a huge pile of earth built up outside of a city wall in order to help get the besieging troops over the wall and into the city. 
the besiegers would win because they had more material supplies and more space and they would build themselves up and basically overwhelm a city. And then there would be the defenders. And when they would get hemmed in, they would begin to get low on water and food and they would summon their last reserves and their strength would become weakness and they would try to delay the final defeat. So the message was man the fortifications. You better get ready because something is coming. And then watch the road. It's a message to look out or to pay attention. What was the role of a watchman in those days? To guard a city. The watchman would be stationed at a strategic point. They would often put these place these cities where they would have natural defenses around them and lines of sight and an easy way to defend them. And the watchman would look out for those enemy attacks. And in the book of 2 Kings, we find an example of this practice. It says a watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And this represents a vigilant watchman. So the Ninevites were to pay attention to who was coming. And then he says, brace yourselves, make strong your loins. Yet another word that we don't often use. But they were to position themselves to get ready for what was on the way and to summon all of their strength. And all the troops would be assembled. Why? Because they trusted in their own power rather than in God. And the message was, you can man the fortifications. You can watch the road. You can brace yourself. You can summon all your strength. And it will be an effort in futility against a mighty God. That's the message. The chariots dashing madly through the streets and rushing through the plazas. And this is describing a battle that's fierce and bloody. And yet they would still be led away captive. The river gates that are referenced would naturally refer to the various canals coming into Nineveh that would be off of the river that I mentioned earlier. And at one time it formed a mighty protection for the city, uh, but now not so much. And Nineveh is presented as a lion's den into which the lion brought the results of their rampaging against the nations. Now again, I ask the question, why was the downfall of Nineveh certain? Well, we find the answer here in the scripture, because the Lord of armies was against them. We cannot overstate the significance of the idea of the Lord of armies. When we say the Lord of armies, we're talking about the God who rules over all that he's created. When we say the Lord of armies, we're talking about the supreme commander of all commanders. He's able. And because of that, there was no way they were getting out of this short of repenting again. And Nineveh's fall would be contrasted with a restoration of God's people. Let's look now at chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. The ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. Now, I would take this as a prophetic perfect. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. The prophet is speaking of something in the future as if it has already happened. 
Now remember I've told you as we've gone through these minor prophets in particular, and then when I talk about prophecy in general, that there's often an already not yet aspect of prophecies that we read in the Old Testament. And there's a sense sometimes of times changing within the narrative. And if you're not following closely, it's almost like whiplash because you're reading along and you're thinking, okay, I'm understanding this now, I'm getting this. And all of a sudden, what just happened? We're in a totally different era here now. We're a totally different situation. Well, that's some of what's happening here in Nahum because he's speaking of something in the future as though it's already happened. So the sentence may also read, the Lord is about to cause Israel to regain its glory. Now, ultimately, I think this is going to be fulfilled in the millennium. I think it's going to be realized permanently in eternity. But the Lord is promising that the covenant that he made with Israel, he was going to keep it. And he was going to restore it. And it was going to be as good as it had ever been. Now, what does it mean to restore something? Well, it means to bring it back to its original purpose. It implies a reversal of misfortune. So I believe that the name Jacob stands here not just for the kingdom of Judah, but to all of Israel. And the Hebrew word translated majesty is very similar to the Hebrew word for vine. And since the second half of the verse speaks about the branches, some scholars think that the word for vine should be read in the first half of the verse. But at any rate, the vine is often used as a picture of the nation of Israel. And here's what Isaiah 5 and verse 1 and 2 says. Let me sing now for my well-beloved the song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But it only produced worthless ones. The prophet Nahum is saying that through the fall of Assyria, God would ultimately restore the former glory of his people, just as he had promised. And the prophet's hope was that the nation would be restored and that God would be glorified through it. And ultimately, that's the message that we find in Revelation 7 as well, of God bringing together what he's promised to do from the beginning. Now, you might recall in the Minor Prophets that we had an illustration of restoration, and we had that illustration in the book of Joel. It's in other places as well, but this is the one I want to refer to. Israel's crops were destroyed by a locust invasion that lasted for more than a year. Locusts are essentially giant grasshoppers. They're, they're nasty creatures, and they destroy everything in their sight. And there will be so many locusts in these plagues that they come up like black clouds. They even create shadows on the earth because they're blocking out the light so much. That's what happened among the people in the prophecy in Joel. And yet, the scripture says in Joel 2 and verse 25, I will restore you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So the locusts that did the damage represent God's judgment. God's promised to restore the years lost to the locust and his pledge to restore his repentant people to a place of blessing after judgment was as good as done and it would be both physical and spiritual now i enjoy watching reality shows from time to time and before 
some of you come and tell me you know those are scripted. Yes, I know they're scripted. It just depends on how heavily they're scripted, and I still enjoy them. And the reason I enjoy them is I have the ability uh, to willingly suspend my disbelief and to enjoy a show. I don't have to pick it apart. I don't have to make myself miserable while watching it. I just like to watch it, okay? So just relax. But there's this Canadian reality show called Lost Car Rescue. Now, I know nothing about restoring cars. Don't really have any interest in it. But this show got my attention one evening I was watching it. And I ended up watching the whole series. So what they do is they search for lost vehicles in the wilderness of Canada. And there's this beautiful countryside and dairy farms and all kinds of farms. Everybody in that show has a purpose. There's, first of all, the pilot. The pilot flies over these vast areas looking for these lost vehicles. And he'll spot a farm. And then down there on that farm, in the midst of the trees, maybe by a stream or something, there's this valuable vehicle that's sitting there. Or at least they say it's valuable. It doesn't look valuable when you first look at it, but it's valuable. And they have an auto body expert. They have a truck driver. They have a crane operator. And they take these vehicles out that look like they're too far gone. I'm talking to have any value. And when they get done with them, they're better than new. I mean, it's phenomenal what they can do with them. And I thought about that theme of restoration and what God does for us is God takes us when we look worthless when we are broken in our sin, when we are dead in our trespasses, when we are separated from God, and he sees us as someone who's been created in his image for whom Christ died. And when we repent of our sins and we turn to Jesus and we are made new creatures in Christ Jesus, God makes us better than we were to begin with. And he completely restores us. Ultimately, he's going to glorify us so that our body and our spiritual aspect of our being will be glorified eternally. But the beauty of it is God does what only God can do. Who else can restore your soul? Only the Lord. Psalm 23 and verse 3 says, He restores my soul. He returns it to its original intended condition. And since God is the one who made us, only he can restore us. He's the only one who knows what we need. And the blessing is God will restore his people and have mercy on them when they trust in him. Maybe that's what you need today. You, you came in here and you felt, like, you felt like the Willis Jeep that they drug out of the weeds and too much rust to do anything with it, broken and undone. I'm here to tell you, God can take you where you are and meet you at your point of need and do for you what nobody else can do. But you have to be willing to repent and believe. And that's what I'm inviting you today, to do today is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. He will make you a new creature in him. And there's a final point I want to give you, and I'm going to move quickly and then close. God makes it clear that we reap what we sow. Now, the text continues with a series of short statements as we move to chapter 3. The first three verses of the chapter continue to picture the fall of Nineveh that began back in chapter 2. The wording reinforces the impression of confusion and panic because Nahum is imagining that he's watching the final assault of the enemy chariots as the city falls. 
In chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. So the reference to the city of blood refers to the fact that they caused bloodshed. They, they were totally deceitful and full of lies. How's that for a chamber of commerce message? This is a bloody city, and these people do nothing but lie. You would want nothing to do with it, but here the Lord is bringing this message of judgment upon them. The images are of galloping horses and charging horsemen and continual prostitution and treating nations and people like nothing more than merchandise. And then the Lord says in verse 5, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. God said to them, I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. All your fortresses are fig trees that when shaken fall, fire will devour the bars of your gates. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. In part, what does it play here is the sowing of sin and the consequences that follow. And I want to draw a parallel from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 and 8. Familiar passage to you, but I want to share it with you anyway because I think it fits well here with this particular idea. And it says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So here's the heart of the message of what he's saying in this particular section. Don't be deceived, God will not be mocked. God will not be treated with contempt and then we think that there's not going to be any consequences for that. And let me say it another way. There's a direct connection between your decisions and the outcomes. So to say it negatively, because we think of consequences typically being a negative idea, every decision you make has a corresponding consequence. And God will not be mocked. What you plant, you also harvest. What you put in is what you will get out. And oftentimes, these things that we get tripped up in are gradual and progressive. Let me explain that a little bit further. I love Randy Alcorn, and he wrote a piece entitled The Cumulative Effect of Our Little Choices in his Eternal Perspectives ministry blog. And he said this, he said, have you ever seen a sinkhole? Cars can be parked on the street day after day, everything appears normal, then one day the asphalt caves in and the cars disappear into a gigantic hole. Everybody says, well, that hole came out of nowhere, but they're wrong. The hole appears suddenly, but the process that led to it might have gone on for many years. The underground erosion was invisible, but it was there all along. And Alcorn says this. He said, sinkholes remind us of two things. First, something can look good on the outside, and underneath there are major problems that have been going on for years, and the disaster is about to happen. By the way, I've seen that happen so many times, ministering to and serving with people. And usually the event that is catastrophic or seems catastrophic at least people look at it and they think well how could that happen that just seemed sudden 
usually it's not sudden. Usually it's the cumulative effect of decisions that have been made, actions that have been taken, and the consequences that follow. Second, he says, our lives are affected by little choices that can result in either moral strength or moral disaster. If you personally sow to the world, you will reap corruption. And the utter end of the offenders was going to be literally fulfilled. In fact, Boyce, the commentator, said not only were these people lost from history, but even the city was lost until it was discovered by archaeologists beginning in the 1840s. David Baker said the author is not expressing some personal feeling of vindication over some hurt by the oppressor, nor even a, a nationalistic chauvinism that pagan nations ought to be punished. Rather, Yahweh is applying his universal standard against evil no matter who is responsible. And God tells Nineveh that he would dig their grave. And then there's another rhetorical question. Did anyone escape your endless cruelty? That's the question that came to the people. Obvious answer, no surrounding nations had. They did evil things to people continually and nobody escaped. All who hear the news that they had been destroyed would be in a position that they would clap their hands for joy. And so here we are. God makes it clear that we reap what we sow. Now, I don't know who needs to hear that message today, but there's somebody here that needs to hear that message because there's something going on in your life that you think is below the surface. Nobody else knows. What could it hurt? What kind of problems could it cause? I can go along with this life-besetting sin that's got me in bondage to it without a problem. Now, you know that's not true. You know you have an enemy who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy, but yet you're still going down that road. And the message for you today is you're going to reap what you sow, so therefore you want to sow righteousness so that you can reap joy and experience the blessing of eternal life that God has secured for you in Christ. Don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. Now back to the big idea. The Lord is our refuge. And this is what I want to close with. Nineveh was destroyed by the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Scythians in 612 B.C. According to an ancient historian, the armies laid siege to the city for about two years. A river which ran through the city flooded, broke down the floodgates, and part of the wall allowed the enemy to come in. The city was so destroyed by the flood and the enemies that later nobody even knew there was a city there. Can you imagine the community that we live in if, if judgment came upon us, like literal biblical judgment came upon us in, in this kind of setting, and it was so completely and utterly destroyed that people didn't even know we ever even existed here? That's what happened to them. And Nineveh was never rebuilt. In fact, it wasn't until 1850 that it was discovered by archaeologists and the destruction of Nineveh and Assyria was a message of consolation for the nations that they had initially oppressed. And I think about the Lord as our refuge and what that really means. Did you know that there are over 108 million people around the world that have fled their homes 
because of conflict, unrest, and disaster. Children comprise half of that number. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind, but there are refugee camps all over the world to help people who have been forced from home. You know where most of those refugee camps reside? In the poorest countries in the world. Not the richest nations. They're in the poorest. And the largest refugee camp in the world is a place in Bangladesh that has over 880,000 refugees. It's Rohingyas, mostly from neighboring Myanmar. They've suffered from ethnic and religious persecution. There's another one in Kenya that has over 200,000 people. Imagine that. Another one in Kenya with just that many people or more. Now, the reason I share that is all these refugees have something in common. They find themselves in danger politically, food sources, religious persecution, economic persecution. There's any number of reasons why they can experience it. And what do they do and when they flee from where they are? They're seeking safety. They're seeking, watch this, a refuge. Spiritually, if the Lord is our refuge and the place that we go for our help, then we need to be certain that we are taking refuge in him. That we are not depending on ourselves or our strength or our ability. Because if the Lord of armies is over and against us, none of that stuff matters. You realize the things that we depend on, our material resources and our, our intellect and our status and the people that we know and the connections that we have, all that stuff that we build up and we think is so important in life, when it's all said and done and you stand before the Lord Almighty, none of that's going to matter. So if you're pouring yourself in an unhealthy way into things, even that might be good things, and you're not ultimately taking your refuge in the Lord, you're going to end up disappointed because you've not lived in the fullness of the blessing of God that He has for you. And that only comes through faith. And again, that's the starting point for some of you here today. You say, Pastor, I know I'm not a Christian. If I were to die tonight, I would not go to heaven to be with God. That can change today. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you're a Christian and you've been depending on yourself rather than on God, you need a renewal of your relationship with him and just tell the Lord, I don't want to depend on myself. I want to depend on you. And I want to bring glory to your name. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, thank you for this message from Nahum. It is a stark message of judgment. But in the midst of it, it's a reminder that you are our refuge. You are a refuge from sin. You're our refuge from the world. You're our refuge from the spiritual enemy. You're our refuge from ourselves, and we thank you for that. So help us to take our refuge in you by faith and to realize what you've done for us in Christ. I thank you that our salvation is nothing that we can earn. It is a gift that comes by your grace. And I pray if there's anybody in this place today that has never received that gift, never entered into an eternal relationship with you through Christ Jesus, that today would be the day. Whatever the needs are, Lord, may we place them at your feet, and know that you are able. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.